Good morning. So greet you in the name of Jesus this morning. Take your Zion's praises. Turn to song number 786. be the introduction to the message this morning. It's kind of a lengthy introduction, but it is where the message was was born. Um, remember, may remember and you may not, a few weeks ago Laverne led this song at a Wednesday evening service. And most times I, I due to the fact of not being fluent with reading music, it tends to take all my concentration to follow the words and the music, the timing, and I miss the message of the songs. But as we finished this song, the last stanza on the fourth verse, oh wow, what a way to end a song. And I went back and was reading through it and uh, trying to read into why the songwriter penned these last words. Show us that self-life ends at the cross. And the title of my message this morning is Self-Life Ends at the Cross. As I studied through the song and pulled thoughts from his writings, um, trying to figure out if there's something specific here, or something that encouraged him to write these, write these words. Um, I did not find any song history. I have a uh, little history on the man himself, but not from the song. And then last Sunday, as, as Delvin was preaching, I began to realize that he was preaching my message. And I leaned over to Darlene and said, I'm going to have to start over. But we... We ended at different places, and I, I trust you can hear some things twice. Uh, you will hear some things if you took notes. I looked over my notes, and we have some of the same things, uh, the same thoughts. But we're going to continue with, with this message. The writer was Daniel Webster Whittle, and his bio Daniel fought in the American Civil War. He reached the rank of Major and for the rest of his life was known as Major Whittle. And during the war, Whittle lost his right arm, ended up in prisoner of war camp. Recovering from his wounds in the hospital, he looked for something to read and he found a New Testament. And though its words resonated with him, he was not ready to accept Christ. And shortly after, a hospital orderly woke him and said, a dying prisoner wanted someone to pray for him. Whittle demurred, but the orderly said, but I thought you were a Christian. I have seen you reading your Bible. Whittle then agreed to go, and he recorded what took place at the dying youth's bedside. I dropped on my knees and held the boy's hand in mine, and in a few broken words, I confessed my sins and asked Christ to forgive me. And I believe he right there that he did forgive me. I then prayed earnestly for the boy. 
He became quiet and pressed my hand as I prayed and pleaded. God's promises, when I arose from my knees, he was dead. A look of peace had come over his troubled face. And I cannot believe, I cannot but believe that God, who used him to bring me to the Savior, used me to lead him to, the, to trust Christ's precious blood and find pardon. I hope to meet him in heaven. <clears throat> and after the war in less than 10 years, he entered the evangelism field. And he, he makes this comment of his decision to devote his life to the gospel. And I think it's very profound. It says, of his decision to devote his life to the gospel, Whittle said that while at work, he went into the vault and in, and in the dead silence of the quietest of places, I gave my life to my heavenly father to use as he would. What does it look like to seek the dead of silence, the quietest of places? I think it's something to consider. And this man wrote the page that I found with his bio listed 130 songs. Is there something about this dead quiet, the silence that produces songs? And we'll leave that where it is. You may hear it in a future message, but I just thought that testimony was something to ponder, something for us to think about. <clears throat> Back to the song, 786. <clears throat> when we sang those last words that night, it just felt like we, we crash landed. It's like we came up against the the cross, and boom, that's it. That's where we stop. And I'm not, I'm not a big uh, music scholar, or, and maybe some of you could uh, give me examples of this and other songs. But most times, when I think of the way songs are written, it's we we first bring the the human tendencies, the self ways, in the first verses, and then we conclude with. God being the answer and a picture of the glories that await in heaven as we complete these songs. But this was written in the opposite way. And it appeared as, as Daniel wrote this, he was thinking of the, uh, the song in, in the four different workings of the Holy Spirit, each verse in a different person. Verse 1 being the, the work of, of God, the Spirit through God. And the Spirit through Jesus. And then verse 3, the work of the Holy Spirit in itself. And then 4, the work of the Holy Spirit in man. Spirit so holy, Spirit of love, Spirit so gentle, sent from above, priceless possession, purchase of blood, good beyond measure, gift of our Lord. Spirit of wisdom, Spirit of light, Spirit of knowledge showing the right, Guide us and teach us fully to know all that in Jesus God would bestow. Spirit so humble, spirit so meek, spirit so kindly, helping the weak, 
Work in and through us, make us to be lowly and loving, yielding to thee. Spirit of power, spirit of God, spirit of burning, work through thy word. Search us and sift us, spare not the dross. Show us that self-life ends at the cross. I'm going to give a little commentary of each each verse as I as I seen it. The picture, the first verse, picture of a loving God giving man his priceless possession. Have you ever considered the Holy Spirit as a priceless possession, and what your life would be if you didn't have it? And you cannot even begin to put a purchase price on it. Simon in the book of Acts wanted to buy it. And Peter had some strong words for him. And we'll look at that later. He says it's a purchase of blood. And the good that comes from the possessing the Spirit is beyond measuring. If you take all the works of the Holy Spirit over thousands of years, there is no way to put it into words. All the good that it accomplished. And after all these things, it's a free gift to us from God. Verse 2, the words that he used describe the uh, the life of Jesus when he was here on earth. You know, we didn't get to hear his teachings in person, but we have these writings that give us all we need. Through the teachings of Jesus, we receive wisdom, light, knowledge, shows us the right way. He guides us, teaches us, and it says fully to know. You know, some things are... Hard to understand in the Bible, but the Spirit revealed to us the workings of Jesus, and that is something we can fully know and understand. Verse 3 shows us the attributes of the Holy Spirit as it works in the heart of man. It is humble. It is meek. It's never arrogant or obnoxious. So kindly helping the weak. It never forces itself on any person, but kindly showing and helping, showing the way. Then it ends with the man's desire for the Spirit to work in us and make these attributes of the Spirit part of who we are and changes into His likeness. In verse 4, Things make a change. And it, it starts to look a little a harsher, painful. Up until this point, we looked at what was holy and what will always be holy. And now the writer looks at the working of the Holy Spirit in man's life. And you may have already picked out the words that are used to describe this. Spirit of power, spirit of burning, work through thy words. Search us, sift us, spare not the dross. Show us that self-life ends at the cross. And this is where the writer stops, at the foot of the cross. Like he wants us to stop right here, stop singing, and ponder our lives. Am I experiencing pain in my Christian journey? If not, am I allowing the Holy Spirit to work through His Word? 
Am I willing to tell God not to spare the dross? And where do we get dross from? It is when we use fire to separate impurities from the things that have value, like silver and gold. And after the dross is taken away, it, it increases the value of that silver and gold. And it takes intense heat to accomplish this, not just the, the warming glow of a, of a soft fire. It's intense heat. I watched a few YouTubes on the purifying process. I think it was mostly on gold. And it's a, it's a very laborious and intense job with extreme heat and, and chemicals that are used. And in the process, the, the one doing, doing the work is wearing all these protective clothes and face shield and using tools that keep from, him from getting too close to this heat. You know, it has this, I don't know how they do it in, in large scale, but this was a small picture, just had a little jar and put some gold uh, in there and placed it directly into the fire. And when he took it out, you could barely tell the difference between this jar and the liquid that was inside it. It was so hot that everything was just a glowing red. But he took that with his tool and dumped it into the chemical. And it was part of the, the purifying process. The, uh, the chemical took out some of that dross, that, that impurity that didn't belong there. When they were finished, it's supposed to be 99.9% pure gold, or something like that. And when I think of sifting, my mind goes back to the days of playing in the sandbox. We had a, we had a sifter that I believe would have been used for sifting flour. It was a round container with an open bottom, and at the top there was a, a screen put in, kind of like a dish, in a rounded uh, shape. And then above that was a was a wheel with these metal um, <clears throat> thin pieces of metal that were shaped to the to the rounded screen with a hand on the side, and you put flour in this sifter or sand if you're playing in the sandbox, and you turn that handle, and as that as that metal came around, forced its way through the flour, it pushed anything down that was smaller than the size of that screen. And as you continued, everything went through except for the things that were too big to be put through that the holes in that screen. And these were then thrown out or maybe put back to the flour mill if another passed through the mill to complete the process. And what's the reason for sifting? It's to cleanse and to purify. You know, if you use this flour... I know we have pure, we can buy purified flour and maybe some of you grind your own. And I don't know if this happens or not, but if you, if you don't sift it and, and you make these rolls that are to melt in your mouth and your guests are chewing on them and they bite on this full kernel of wheat or maybe a small stone that got into the wheat as they were gathering from the field. <clears throat> And this is how it can be for us as Christians if we don't allow ourselves to be sifted, to be refined, to be purified. And what's on the inside 
can be different than what's on the outside, what shows on the outside. When we allow ourselves to be heated up or sifted to remove those impurities, it, it can be like that role. It looks good on the outside and disappoint people by what's on the inside if we don't remove this stuff. Sifting is a purifying process just like the fire is for gold and silver and the songwriter is inviting the spirit to work through his word. And basically we can get the sense that he's inviting for this pain to take place in his life so that he can come out a better person, purified as the Holy Spirit works his will in his life. Don't stop till all the dross is gone, even if there's pain, until all the impurities are removed. And I think we all like the word and thought of purity, personal purity, pure mind, pure church. But am I willing to experience pain if that is what it takes? Maybe even severe pain as the Holy Spirit works its will in my life. And this is where the message parallels with last Sunday's message. My mind went to circumstances that happen in our life that we have no control of. Things that could have happened recently, long ago, and we ask, why me? It's not fair. Why do I need to go through this and no one else does? It can also be a process of removing sin. A few notes that I took from last Sunday is we like to make plans, and this is good. Goals keep us motivated. Self and sin can interfere with these plans. When we are self-focused, we lose sight of God's plan. God has a purpose in everything that happens. I'm not sure if Delvin used this verse or not. Romans 8.28. Does anybody off the top of their head know what this verse is without looking? Thank you. Did you use that, Delvin? Not sure. (laughs) I think you may have. How do we read and think about this verse? He also mentioned last Sunday how life for some people just seems to go just like they have a plan. Is this how I'm tempted to look at this verse? As long as things are going, the way that I think best for me, I can agree with the verse, but when things go against my expectation, then it doesn't apply to my situation. I'm going to read Romans 8, 26-28 in the Amplified. And it gives a, uh, a very strong feeling of the Holy Spirit working and understanding what we're going through. In the same way the Spirit comes to us and helps us in our weakness, we do not know what prayer to offer or how to offer it as we should. But the Spirit Himself knows our needs and at the right time intercedes on our behalf with sighs 
and groanings too deep for words. And he who searches the heart knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because the Spirit intercedes before God on behalf of God's people in accordance with God's will. And we know with great confidence that God, who is deeply concerned about us, causes all things to work together as a plan for good for those who love God to those who are called according to his plan and purpose. Does this mean everything? No, surely not what I went through. It can't be part of God's plan. When things happen that totally turn our lives upside down, does that mean that it's not part of God's plan? And Delvin also alluded to this. Another thing we often hear, if you knew what I faced growing up or how I was never accepted, or it can go on and on, um, it's so easy to do. I'm guilty of doing this. You know, it's... The way I, the way I grew up or the way my understanding, the way I was taught or, you know, there's, there's so many ways we can give excuses. If you knew what I went through, you would understand why I respond the way I do. You know, there's so many things that did not, I did not experience personally. And I know there's things that happen to children that they should never have to experience. Even for adults, same thing. There's so much pain that comes with some of these things and also with grief. And I'm sure the darkness is so black that you may wonder if you ever see the sunshine again. I don't know what each of you faced in your life. So I can't stand here and say that I understand all you went through, but I do know this. No matter what we face in this life, grief, someone else sinning against us, physical, mental limitations, or maybe a thorn in the flesh like Paul experienced, in whatever God has planned for our life, he has no intention that it makes us a worse person. But as we walk through these fires, through the refining process of the Holy Spirit, we can become a better person. If we allow the Holy Spirit in our lives, we will never face anything alone. We can always come out better. Not be because of ourselves, because of the work of the Spirit as we, that we read about in this song. And I will say I don't feel qualified to talk about grief. I never experienced it with close family members. And God may test me someday. And will I be able to quote Hebrews 8.28? I hope I can. But the reason I can talk about this with confidence is not because I faced all these things, but because of the testimony of others who have went through and have walked through the fire and felt the pain and continue to glorify God for His goodness. And I've also seen the other effect, where those who thought their problems are bigger than God and became immersed in self-pity and bitterness. 
And I'm going to stop here and clarify one thing. In everything I say this morning, I'm in no way minimizing the pain that you may have experienced or the severity of the trauma that you may be dealing with because of what you went through. But this message is about allowing the Holy Spirit to work His will in our lives and how this will affect how we come out on the other side of these experiences. And what makes the difference on how we come out on the other side of our circumstances? Let's go back to the last words of the song. Show us that self-life ends at the cross. When we get to the cross and accept Christ into our lives, we no longer are in control of our own lives. But we have given it to Jesus for his service. Jesus, here I am. Use me for your glory. And when we begin to question and resent God for what we are facing, we begin to feed on this root of bitterness. And the root of a plant is what's under the ground, and it's, it's what's feeding the plant that's above that we see. And a person can soon tell if that plant is feeding on soil and water that is healthy by looking at the part of the plant that is above ground. And it's the same for us. What the root of our heart is feeding on will soon show by our actions and words. Hebrews 12, 14 and 15. Follow peace with all men and holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord. Looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. You know, this is a sobering verse. Bitterness does not stay inside of one person. If you look at the Greek meaning of bitterness, it has the thought of poison. And Satan is the author of bitterness, and he isn't happy with just pulling one person down. But the effect of bitterness and being like poison, when it is found in a church or a family or any group of people that are putting their roots down and drawing from the same soil, it spreads just like poison. And when we resent and become bitter, we are telling God that what I want, what I think my life should be like is better than what you want for me. Self-life ends at the cross. This doesn't mean we don't think for ourselves or make our own decisions, but we always are tuning ourselves to the voice of the Holy Spirit and praying for leading and direction and saying, Thy will be done. Turn to Acts 8. These are the words of Peter to Simon, Acts 8, 18 to 23. And when Simon saw that through laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power, and on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. But Peter said unto him, 
Thy money perish with thee, because thou hast thought that the gift of God may be purchased with money. Thou hast neither part nor lot in this matter, for thy heart is not right in the sight of God. Repent, therefore, of this thy wickedness, and pray God, if perhaps the thought of thine heart may be forgiven thee. For I perceive that thou art in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Then answered Simon and said, Pray ye the Lord for me, that none of these things which ye have spoken come upon me. Peter told Simon that because of his bondage to sin, he was finding himself in this gall of bitterness. And gall, if you go back to the, the Greek root word, would also have the thought of poison or anodyne, which is a painkiller. Remember that they tried to give Jesus gall as he, and he denied it when he was on the cross. He did not take of that painkiller offered to him, but he bore it all. But, a, but Simon was apparently using this, this bitterness to kill the pain of a sinful life. Sin does not produce a life of radiating God's glory, but often people living in sin are reveling in bitterness. God also warned the children of Israel about the root that is drawing from this painkiller poison. Go to Deuteronomy 29. Deuteronomy 29, 17 to 21. And ye have seen their abominations and their idols, wood, stone, silver, and gold, which were among them, lest there should be among you man or woman or family or tribe whose heart turneth away this day from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of these nations, lest there should be any among you a root that beareth gall and wormwood. And it came to pass, when he heareth the words of this curse, and he bless himself in his heart, saying, I shall have peace, though I walk in the imagination of mine heart to add drunkenness to thirst. The Lord will not spare him, but then the anger of the Lord and his jealousy shall smoke against that man, and all the curses that are written in this book shall lie upon him. And the Lord shall blot out his name from under the under the heaven. God took strong measure to destroy this root before it became poison to others. And God does not tolerate idolatry, which was the focus of, of these verses. And what does idolatry come from? It comes when self-life does not end at the cross. And we hold our ideas above God's plans. I want to look at two men who had every right to be bitter, but rather chose to die to self. And the result of both of their decisions, others received life. And the first man go to Genesis 45. Genesis 45, 1 to 8. Then Joseph could not refrain himself before all them that stood by him. 
And he cried, Cause every man to go out from me. And there stood no man with him, while Joseph made himself known unto his brethren. And he wept aloud. And the Egyptians and the house of Pharaoh heard. And Joseph said unto his brethren, I am Joseph, doth my father yet live? And his brethren could not answer him, for they were troubled at his presence. And Joseph said unto his brethren, Come near to me, I pray you. And they came near. And he said, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold into Egypt. Now therefore be not grieved nor angry with yourselves that you sold me hither, for God did send me before you to preserve life. For these two years hath the famine been in the land, and yet there are five years, in the which there shall neither be earing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve you a posterity in the earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So now it was not you that sent me hither, but God. And he hath made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house, and a ruler throughout all the land of Egypt. Go to chapter 50. Verses 15 to 21. And when Joseph's brethren saw that their father was dead, they said, Joseph will peradventure hate us and will certainly requite us all the evil which we did unto him. And they sent a messenger unto Joseph, saying, Thy father did command before he died, saying, So shall ye say unto Joseph, Forgive, I pray thee now, the trespass of thy brethren and their sin, for they did unto thee evil. And now we pray thee, forgive the trespasses of the servants of the God of thy father. And Joseph wept when they spake unto him. And his brethren also went and fell down before his face. And they said, Behold, we be thy servants. And Joseph said unto them, Fear not, for am I in the place of God? But as for you, ye thought evil against me, but God meant it unto good, to bring to pass as it is this day, to save much people alive. Now therefore fear ye not, I will nourish you and your little ones. And he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Could the fears of Joseph's brothers been a reality? That they feared for their life before Joseph? I think it definitely could have been. Joseph had many things against him. He could have rejected God and his plan. He could have, through his pain, he could have set his roots and drawn from that poison of sin that he rejected. If that were the case for Joseph, he would have had all the authority and the people around him to carry out that execution because of bitterness toward his brothers. They had treated him terribly. They sold him. He was rejected. He was hated. He was wrongfully accused. His life was shattered to pieces. If he had any dreams for his life, they were gone. But what his brothers didn't know was that Joseph never walked away from God because of his circumstances. But rather, it seemed to strengthen him. Self was non-existent because of his unwavering faith In God's plan for him, many lives were saved 
in the years of the famine that God showed Joseph was coming. Pharaoh put him in charge of gathering food for those years of famine, and many people ate from that food, and their lives were saved. Turn to Luke 22. Twenty-two, thirty-nine to 46. And he came out and went as he was wont to the Mount of Olives and his disciples also followed him. And, and when he was at the place, he said unto them, Pray that ye enter not into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's cast and kneeled down and prayed, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared on, and there appeared an angel unto him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. And his sweat was as it were great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from the prayer, and he was come to his disciples, he found them sleeping with sorrow. He said unto them, Why sleep ye? Rise and pray, lest ye enter into temptation. I've said this before and I'll say it again when the Bible tells us that Jesus understands everything we face we can believe that why did Jesus go and pray to his father to remove that cup from him often when I think of Jesus suffering I'm tempted to think of him as as God as uh as being sinless, which he was, and you always got to come back to the fact that he was also fully human, but he didn't sin. And this this prayer shows us that there was something inside of him that he was struggling with. Why else would he ask God to remove that cup from him? But in that prayer, he committed everything to his father and that his plan was the best plan. Did Jesus have any grounds for being bitter? And probably our quick answer would be no, because he's sinless. He's God. But how did Jesus really feel when he thought about the fact that he was going to have to die sinless for sinners. He was dying for us who sinned, though he had never sinned. What was Jesus struggling with in the garden? Was it these very feelings or was it the pain that he knew he was going to have to, to bear? I think Jesus was able to experience these very things, but he never responded wrongly to them. It says in agony he prayed more earnestly. And whatever he was facing, it was very real to him. Because Jesus did not take his self-life beyond the cross, you and I can have life 
Many, many people have received life from one man showing us that self-life ends at the cross. He chose not to call angels to rescue him, but he submitted to his father's plan for his life. Jesus also gave the promise of the Holy Spirit and what it will accomplish in John 16, 7 and 8. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is expedient for you that I will go away. For if I go not away, the Comforter will not come unto you. But if I depart, I will send him unto you. And when he has come, he will reprove the world of sin and of righteousness and of judgment. And I want to close with this challenge. When you think of Jesus and how he chose to surrender to his Father, and through that, many received life. When you think of the cost that he went through to accomplish this, then think of what God has asked you to go through and ask the question, how can what I went through give life to someone else? As we set our roots deeper into God's will for our lives, and give up our self-life, God will show you that the sun is still shining behind the cloud, and we call this the cloud with the silver lining. And eventually the sun may peek out from behind that cloud, and it may disappear again, but we know it is always there. And the point I want to leave is if we succumb to bitterness, because our life did not go the way we planned, or we have something in our lives that has the potential to make us bitter, we will not be able to give life to others, but the opposite will happen. We will poison others and pull them down with us. And I think God is grieved by things that happen because of us living in the sin-filled world. But at the same time, will through his spirit purify us. It may be very painful, but I'm confident that it is through his word and through his purified people that others can and will receive life. I think this is the work of the church. That we give others life. Will you be a life giver? There can be beauty in brokenness. How many uh, heard of the art of uh, Kintsugi, if I'm pronouncing it right? I heard another speaker mention it, and I looked it up just to see what it is. Uh, The Japanese developed an art of repairing broken pottery. And they're using epoxy mixed with gold. I don't know if it was a Christian that started this art, but the Christians have taken this art and have used it to show what God can do with broken pieces. They take the broken pieces of a cup or a bowl and they glue them together with this mix that includes gold. What was broken and shattered in pieces is restored to its original use 
with the cracks having the etching of gold. Or there might be times when you just have a cup that has a chip out of it and they'll take the same mix and they'll, they'll fill it in with this gold mix. And you may have a black cup with a golden spot on it, but it's all smooth again as the original shape. And just like Jesus, who will always bear the scars from the nails in his hands and feet, we may need to bear the scars of our past. But those scars can be beautiful, just like the, just like Jesus' scars are to us. Our scars can be beautiful to others, and others can receive life through that. Don't allow your circumstances to control you, but allow God to control your circumstances.